ಓಮಜ್ಞಾನಿತ್ಯನಂದಸೋದಿಷ್ಣಾಕರುಣಾಸಿಂಧೂ ಗೋಪಿಷಾಗೋಪಿಕಾಕಂತರಕಂತನಮೋಸ್ತುಜೆತಪ್ತಾಂಚಾನಗೌರಂಗೀ ರಾಧೇ ಬೃಂದಾವನೇಶ್ವರೀಶುಭಾನುಸುಧೀರ್ದೇ ಪ್ರಣಮಿ ಹರಿ ಪ್ರಿಯೇ ಹರಿವೈಷ್ಣಾವರಂಪರಾಕಿ ಜಾಯ್ ಶ್ರೀಮದ್ ಭಾಗವದ್ಗೀತಕ್ಕೆ ಜಾಯ್ ಭಾಗವದ್ಗೀತ ಸೆಕೆಂಡ್ ಚಾಪ್ಟರ್ ಸಿಕ್ಸ್ ಟ್ವೆಂಟಿ ತ್ರೀ ಶೋಷೆಯೋಚ ನಿತ್ಯ ಸಾರ್ವಕಥಾಸ್ತಾನಚಲೋಯಂ ಸನಾತನ ಶೂರಿ ದ ಸೆಲ್ಫ್ ಇಸ್ ಇಂಡಿವಿಜಿಬಲ್ ಅನ್ಬರ್ನಬಲ್ ಇನ್ಸಾಲ್ಯುಬಲ್ ಅಂಡ್ ಕೆನಾಟ್ ಬಿ ಡ್ರೈಡ್ ಅಪ್ ಇಟ್ ಇಸ್ ಇಟರ್ನಲ್ ಆಲ್ ಪ್ರವೇಡಿಂಗ್ ಚೇಂಜ್ಲೆಸ್ ಅನ್ಮೂವಿಂಗ್ ಅಂಡ್ ಪ್ರೈಮೇವಲ್ ಟ್ವೆಂಟಿ ಫೈವ್ ಅವ್ಯಕ್ತೋಯಮಚಿಂತೋಯಂ inconceivable and unchangeable knowing this you should not mourn for the body so this uh these verses go together and um they form the end of a of an argument that krishna is making in the context of this section of the chapter the section of the chapter of course uh begins with verse 11 where um krishna begins to lecture arjun as to why he shouldn't worry and uh and the reason is well he's not the body basically as explained in this chapter that verse of course verse 11 corresponds to some extent with the end of the gita where krishna again says don't worry but when he says don't worry the second time by that time he has given many more reasons why not to worry other than the reason uh, given in this section that there's a difference between the soul and the body this is kind of the groundwork that he's laying for ultimately his theistic argument about his own position and the possibility of a relationship with him which obviously if we think that out gives us much more reason not to worry <laughs> and so it's it's uh it's the beginning of the gita as we sometimes say and it's the it's the end as well well reasoned end from a philosophical and theological point of view of ancient times and uh it has some currency in modern times today overviewing the chapter briefly here in terms of where we are at this point should be noted that prior to Krishna's beginning this particular argument of course Arjuna expressed his 
further his perplexity that uh, that he voiced at the end of the first chapter where the great warrior threw down his bow. It's very remar remarkable. Mm -hmm. If we know something about, so have studied something about the character of Arjun as a warrior, uh, to put down his bow and give up fighting, it tells us something. Um, it underscores, I should say, the nature of this particular kind of heroic undertaking that Arjun is being encouraged to to embrace by Krishna. It's the greatest battle, in other words. He was uh, a hugely successful, well-accomplished warrior in a material sense, and for that matter, fighting for the sake of dharma, for the sake of religion. So here, the, as I say, the the battle that has been put before him by Krishna, which is initially to, to, to slay his ego and to do that in the context of developing a serving ego in relation to Krishna, this is a huge uh, challenge. It makes the struggles of material existence, it makes our victories, materially speaking, um, the winning of kingdoms and so forth, which Arjuna was accomplished at, to be very small in comparison. He's trembling. And he's a big and powerful person, materially, both in terms of just raw physical prowess. He's also very intelligent. But beyond that, he has the strength of dharma as well, of moral character. And, and, uh, and that is a, that's a very extraordinary kind of strength that certainly exceeds physical strength or mental strength. One may be very mentally powerful at making arguments and very st physically strong, at uh, moving, lifting, and uh, pushing things, and so forth, but maybe very weak, nonetheless, from a moral point of view. So he's strong in all respects. He's strong physically. He's strong mentally, intellectually, and he's strong morally. And he's weak in the face of the task that has been laid before him by Krishna to slay his ego, to to step on the head of Dharma and go up from there. Dharma is at least visible. It's a, it's, it's a visible form of, of religiosity or spirituality because if you do dharma, you get a result, is the idea. If you put a money in the Coke machine, you get a Coke out. <laughs> it's very, it's the mechanical. Hmm? It's dealing with the mechanics of material nature, as understood in Vedanta, such that you will get a good result. So it's, it's a tangible form of religion, more readily easy, easy to, to believe in than bhakti, which you can put a coin and coin and coin in the machine and Krishna may not come out. <laughs> he does as he likes. He's swarat, fully independent. Of course, he is conquered by bhakti, that's a fact. But, but when he decides to be conquered by bhakti, when, when he gives in, and uh, reveals himself, shows himself, and so forth. That is entirely up to him. Uh, so Arjuna is being asked to invest in the, in the realm of the invisible. And to Krishna, he's, he's struggling with that. He, he, he uh, acknowledges that um, as strong as he is in other respects, he needs guidance in this connection. So he accepts... Krishna as his, as his guide, 
And interestingly, prachami at sadi mam tom prapannam, I surrender to you. And an interesting thing to note about this very important verse of the Gita where Krishna, where Arjuna surrenders to Krishna, he surrenders, but um, he doesn't become a yes man either. He has questions that he brings up. He has doubts that he brings up. Still, he surrenders here early on in the second chapter. Now the discourse between guru and disciple begins, and there are questions that he raises. There are doubts that he raises and so forth. So we should understand that, that the relationship between the teacher and the student is not one in which we um, have no a position to question, to voice doubts. And he does it respectfully, thoughtfully, and so on and so forth. And this is, of course, the dynamics of how we, we learn, even in an ordinary sense. They said that there are no stupid questions. There's no foolish questions. The foolish thing is to do is to not to ask your questions thinking that they might be foolish, for example. So Arjuna surrenders, but it's a, it's a surrender to, to, in a sense, to, to learning at the feet of, of Krishna. And in the course of that learning, there will be, well, I don't know if I accept that. Give me another answer. Give me another example. But you said this, but what about that? And so forth. So there's a place for that, as I've said before. We should sit before the guru and doubt, express the doubts that they might be removed. Of course, we have to understand what it means to remove a doubt. If we come before the guru, it means we come with faith, which may have been awakened by the guru, certainly by the, by the sadhus and the descent of divinity. And that faith is in faith in revelation. And that means faith that comprehensive knowing can only come about if God wants me to know, if the infinite wants me to know, I can know. And he does, and this is the medium, through guru and shastra. So the guru cites the shastra. He cites scriptural logic. We call it shastra yukti, the kind of yukti, the kind of logic that supports the ongoing argument of revelation. So there's room for new light, but in the context of, of the basic... Uh, uh, text of Revelation, we kind of move within that. There's a lot of room for commentary, further explanation, new insight about a particular verse, how to apply it at time and circumstance, what different nuanced meanings of it may be, and so forth. So this is the art of, of uh, theological uh, discourse. Um, so, so, faith in a particular context Therefore, the guru answers in a particular context by citing the sacred texts, for example. I say this, and the texts say this, and this is what they mean, and this is why, and so forth, and so on. Here, um, Krishna also cites the texts indirectly. In these three verses we've, we've mentioned, after he's made a pretty uh, strong argument for the idea that what we are is... Consciousness, atma, not uh, not matter. There's a distinction between the two. So, so from verse eleven onward, as Krishna begins to speak in reciprocation to Arjuna's surrender, then um, uh, this is his, his initial argument. We're in the middle of that argument. It will go up to verse thirty, at which point Krishna will reflect briefly back in a few, maybe four or five verses, on the arguments that Arjuna gave in the first chapter, as from a dharmic point of view, largely as to why he shouldn't 
engage in the battle. Krishna is undercutting all of that here at first and taking it to another level, but he doesn't ignore it entirely. He'll go back to that briefly and explain from a dharmic point of view still why, why also he should fight. Mm-hmm. And then, um, then the, the, the chapter, named as it is Sankhya Yoga, takes another direction. The chapter is named after this section of the Gita that we're studying now from verse 11 to verse 30. The second half of the chapter is about yoga, which in that context, this context means applying the teachings that are found here. The basic teaching is, is here is what? That there is a difference between the body and the soul. So there's a, there's a differentiation, a distinction being made, an evaluation, accounting, if you will, which is what Sankhya literally means, to count. Um, it, it, to count means to measure, it means to calculate, to make uh, uh, discrimination and so forth. So this is the subtle form of discrimination, uh, that we would say the most subtle, and uh, it, it, distinguishing, discriminating between matter and spirit. It's very basic to the whole of the yogic uh, experience, the whole of the bhakti experience. So Sankhya has this broader meaning, and it's, it's, uh, there's a whole philosophy of Sankhya, which is basically an enumeration upon the different elements of matter and uh, the distinction between consciousness and matter, the Purusha and the Prakriti, and, uh, and so on. And uh, it's one of the oldest, if, if not the oldest, uh, from an academic perspective, the dating perspective of the six darshans of India. They're called darshans, the philosophies of India. I think we've mentioned that before. Darshans means they're, they're ways of seeing then, they're ways of looking at the world. And um, all of the other darshans of, uh, uh, well, and Vedanta in particular, they embrace some aspects of Sankhya, the basic Sankhya analysis of the material constituents constituents, what makes up the up matter and how matter develops in terms of its uh, um, taking shape and providing a medium through which consciousness, which is independent of matter, can interact with matter. Um, here the argument is that there's a difference between consciousness and matter. And we would, in, in modern day terms, that's called downward causality. The argument that's here in the Gita is a philosophical argument, is an argument that still goes on today. This was a long, long time ago that this argument was uh, put forward by Krishna Arjuna and by the rishis of ancient times. It's still around today. It's not the most popular argument in the Western world in, 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 well, where there is an argument to the contrary, hmm? that there is no distinction between consciousness and matter, and between mind and matter. That's called monism, it's called materialism, it's called physicalism, it's called naturalism. And uh, a fair amount of research has been done from a scientific approach to the idea that there's a difference between mind and brain and majority of people in the scientific community side with the idea that the mind and brain are one. There really is no such thing as a mind 
or consciousness. It's an epiphenomenon of the brain. And there are very many, many nuanced understandings of this, quite a number of them, very technical. And if you're not schooled in the subject, the terms are hard to get, to get uh, much from. But basically, there are a number of arguments from a scientific perspective that equate brain with mind, which means to say that there is no, nothing other than the physical. And then there are some arguments, then, these are arguments based on evidence. This is how science works, this is how the modern world works, and even the postmodern world, as it's called, which doesn't agree entirely with the objectivity of science, nonetheless uses it quite a bit. So, the, uh, anyway, in the, in the, in the, from the scientific perspective, there's nothing but the physical. I mean, that's, not, that's, that's a perspective based on evidence. Uh, physicalism, naturalism, materialism is really a philosophy. It's not science. It's a philosophy or inference, reason, philosophizing about evidence to reach any attempt to reach a conclusive philosophical outlook as to how the, what the world is like. More often than not, naturalism, physicalism, materialism, and so forth, which are names that have changed over time to make it more expansive, but still material, if you will, still leave out any room for a soul or for consciousness. This uh, argument is often presented in such a way as to lead people to believe that it's a scientific conclusion. In other words, that the evidence from science demonstrates once and for all that there's no such thing as a soul implication, which is no such thing as a god. There's only physical processes. But that is a very big intellectual sleight of hand. Hmm? Uh, the evidence doesn't demonstrate that. Uh, there's, there's, there's no evidence whatsoever that, that, that is conclusive, I should say, by any stretch of the imagination that life evolves from matter. There's, a, there's, there's a lot of evidence that, that there's a biological type of evolution, but that life itself, which Darwin didn't even address, begins at the beginning of life, he doesn't address that, that it has um, um, physical, which would include chemical origins, is nowhere near being demonstrated unequivocally. Or, uh, so, so uh, and, and neither is the idea that consciousness is, is, is physical, really, the, or the mind is the brain, has that been anywhere near demonstrated? But, but there are a lot of accomplishments from science which have arisen from the particular approach to the world, which is objectivity, and, and, and which requires evidence and uh, third-party kind of confirmation to get away from object, uh, subjectivity, of first-person type of testimonies and so forth that, that can't be validated, falsifiable evidence, which is another whole topic, whether anything's falsifiable, is, is kind of questionable philosophically perhaps, but... Um, these are terms that are important in science. If it can't be f shown to be false, uh, if, it, if it can be proved to be falsifiable, you know, 
or not, then we'll accept it or not, something like that. So, so there's a, there's a lot of accomplishments that have come from this, of course, and we live on the bounty of those accomplishments of, of this approach. And so it gains a lot of credence. It, um, it, it's, it's, um, you know, you can sit and do a hocus pocus and hope that, uh, that the person's gonna, the evil spirit is gonna be, um, chased out of his, of this person's body and he's gonna be well, uh, or you can give him an injection of penicillin and the fever goes away and, uh, you know, so these kind of things are, have been medicine and so many accomplishments in science have, um, certainly, um, um, generated a lot of faith in the scientific method and the scientific approach to life and so forth. A lot of faith, so much faith that people are completely invested in it and without evidence they refuse to make a leap. But in fact, my point is that they do take a leap to embrace naturalism, which is a philosophy. It's not supported by science. Uh, people have a, enough faith in it to, to feel that there's enough evidence that the leap is very, very small. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very, very small. And they'll, they'll say things like, look over 200 years what has been accomplished by science. And for thousands of years previously, what was acquired by religion and superstition and so forth. Therefore, we believe it won't be long now, given the incredible accomplishments of modern science that uh, we'll reach this conclusion too. This is the proverbial uh, post-dated check that Prabhupada used to talk about. But they're willing to accept that post-dated check because they feel that yours is also a post-dated check. Mm -hmm. hmm? You cannot prove that what Krishna is saying here in the Gita about the soul being different from matter, you cannot prove it. Mm -hmm. Hmm? Uh, and in such a way that, uh, that you know, it's, it's, it's conclusive. It's a... You know, we understand it, they'll say, it's a strong psychological need. We're hardwired in our brain to have a need for knowing, for meaning, for purpose, for the sense that life is bigger than, you know, it's perceived by the senses, but it's really not. And, and they'll say, so you, you should just get used to that and, uh, and take your hopes and dreams out of the whole thing. Um, of course, theirs is a hope and theirs is, 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 is a dream as well. And there is also evidence that uh, leads naturally to, by way of inference, reason, and philosophy, to a world, a theistic worldview. Hmm? And, and, and a view that there is, a, there is a difference between consciousness and matter. They use the term when I introduced this as downward causality, the idea, the idea that from mind, it's called teleological, there's a term that there's a, there's, a, there's a cause that affects matter. Mind affects matter. The cause is not just material, but there's a substance called mind that affects matter. So, um, you know, there are, there, there, are, there are people in the community, in the scientific community, who embrace what's called substance dualism, which is basically the idea that there's a dualistic, there's matter and there's mind. And they draw from evidence, and like placebo effect would be an example. A placebo effect is the, is the effect where there is no real pill, physical pill. But I'm, I tell you, if you take this, you're going to get better. 
And so the mind functions accordingly and causes a physical effect. Uh, it's probably the most simplistic one. And there are other evidences as well. Now, that's not to say that these evidences are conclusive, but they're, they're, they, they give room for a reasonable conjecture about that confirms a common sense understanding that pervades human society. And there's, there, 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 it's evidence that gives support to reasonable conjecture that what we naturally think is correct. We naturally think that because I think of something and I think, hmm, I feel uncomfortable sitting like this, let me move my leg the other way. That the cause of that physical action has its origins in the mind. That's this common sense. Now, the, the naturalist will say, well, that may be common sense and it may appear like that, but that doesn't make it right. Actually, what happens is this neuron fires here and, 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 and this is why, how it happens. Of course, you know, I have different decisions to make. A, pl- a number of decisions come. Should I move my leg or should I not move my leg? Maybe I shouldn't feel uncomfortable, even though I do. Maybe if I move it, I'll still be uncomfortable. All these reasons come, and then you decide on one and so forth. So there's the question of whether there is will or not and so forth. And the substance dualists, of course, like us, will say there is will and, uh, and, and, and consciousness is different from matter and so forth. And the physicalists all try to fit it with inside of matter. A very sophisticated uh, effort they make that, that, that has uh, some convincing power for people perhaps who are uh, disposed towards that uh, type of thinking or get exposed to it and indoctrinated to it. And, and there are people who will never, never buy into that. And this is the ongoing, forever probably, struggle between really theism and non-theism, between the supernaturalists and the naturalists. Um, but in today's world, these kind of arguments will not go very far in terms of the prevailing scientific influences, influence and accomplishments that, that have given them given rise to faith in them and so on and so forth. They'll not go very far in one sense, but in another sense they will, because they very much appeal to and give reasoning that supports our common sense kind of way of thinking about things and thinking about ourselves. Now again, the science will want to dismiss all of that and say, "Well, those are psychological needs. They don't. They're not. There's no evidence to support those sensibilities. Have any objective truth to them? That there's a soul different from matter. That there's there's a something that's transpersonal that transcends my ego. And so they'll even go and investigate the mystical states and so forth to an extent, and conclude that there are psychological, you know, reasons. For example, in Buddhism, for wanting to end suffering, and so there's a want and uh, then a projection, and, and then the brain works in a particular way, and then there's an increase of the serotonin that floods the, you know, whatever. And so the mystical state is experienced and so forth. I haven't seen any arguments that take into consideration the moral consequences of mystical experience and the differentiation between mystical experiences, those of a temporary nature, for example, that are induced by drugs, and those that are induced by, um, say, bhakti, for example. 
that uh, are seen to be enduring in persons and and foster, as I say, a type of conduct. What they do is is they they take the theory that even a, a naturalist largely will embrace that an educated one that we should uh, you know follow the golden rule or that we should love our uh, neighbor as ourself these are interesting ideas that any educated person today will say these are good ideas they don't have to be based in any ontological you know reality of a god or that we can accept these ideas but to actually really always act in terms of those ideas. One has to come into the mystical state, otherwise one will be deviated by one's, by one's lesser, we call it lesser perspective, self-perspective, and so forth. So if these, call, call them basic moral principles, are universally accepted as desirable, then the mystical state, which, which enables one to see that, to see your neighbor as your brother, for example, hmm? and therefore act accordingly, has some value, some pragmatic value. I would, anyway, that's just a, just a side kind of discussion, an argument that might be interested, interesting to pursue. It doesn't necessarily have the potential to convince a naturalist that the mystical state is, is, is something that is what it says, what the mystics say it is. They want to say the mystical state is not what the subject experiencing it says it is, because it can't be verified by... But anyway, the whole theory here, of course, is also that such a thing is, escapes empirical verification. This is a given. They may see that as a cop-out, but it's a given. It's the very nature of the thing. And also, those who are substance dualists, they can make a very strong argument that there is nothing that precludes one from positing a soul and God from practicing science. Sometimes it's often thought, if you believe in the soul, you're not science. you can't do science. They say you can't do science because they have a thing called physical closure. Physical closure means that it's all a closed physical system and it has to function within that. And if we bring something out from that, how can we do science? But you can demonstrate logically that it's not necessary to, um, to universally accept physical closure. You may have to do physical closure locally to make an experiment on something, but to universally accept it is not necessary in order to perform science. Anyone can believe in the soul, and there are many people that do, and do science and do it very well, and so forth. So... There are some good arguments for downward causality, as they call it, and for and, and based on evidence. Um, it's not the most popular conclusion, but there are well-reasoned, thoughtful people who embrace it, and um, they tend to be, you know, full theists as as well. In Vedanta, of course, we make an interesting distinction from substance dualists of today, and that is that we distinguish between the mind and the soul. And we posit Sankhya, posits, it's not happening here, but it does show itself in the Gita later on, 
when Krishna starts to describe Bhumirapo and Alohavayo in the seventh chapter, Kamano, Buddha, the elements, earth, water, fire. It's all Sankhya also, the counting of the different elements and, and so forth. The distinguishing between mind and soul and mind and matter, the positing of a subtle matter, subtle matter, mind, intelligence, ego. The idea in Sankhya as to the world is that this Purusha, and we have a theistic idea of Sankhya, as put in the as explained in the Bhagavatam, Sankhya in and of itself is not theistic because it doesn't posit a deity, a God, just consciousness and matter. We do, and we say, God, poetically speaking, glances at matter and impregnates matter with consciousness, and the jivas then interact with matter, and that matter is, is a primordial matter where the modes of, of its operandus, of its operating, the kasatvaradis and tamas are in equilibrium, and there's a big explosion that, that occurs when consciousness is injected into matter, kind of like the Big Bang idea. And, 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 and then, conscious, then, then matter starts to animate, and consciousness perceives itself on the mirror of matter, and that perceiving is based on buddhi, and then buddhi comes from that comes ahankar, a false ego, the identification of matter, and then as the ahankar interacts with now these modes that have been have been taken out of equilibrium, in sattva it interacts and mind take, takes place, in, with rajas it interacts, and uh, the senses and sense perceptions take place, and it interacts with Thomas, and the sense objects manifest. And so for the, there's, there's this downward evolution where the matter, material world, assembles, and the idea is the soul kind of goes all the way down to the bottom, and then starts coming up, which is a conscious evolution through karma and so forth, and uh, comes to the human form of life. It's an interesting concept. It's probably the most interesting ancient uh, concept of the world, of of the material world, um, the material you know stuff that's it's out and about from a scientific point of view. The famous uh, I don't know what he was, an astronomer maybe or a physicist Carl Sagan. Um, he uh, used to um, readily acknowledge that India, India's ancient worldview about the world is the, is with its huge cycles of time and so forth. Uh, more, much more closely resembles anything that we have in modern science than any other ancient theological or spiritual worldview. Hardly, you know, certainly not Christianity, which is you know, seven, seven days. Everything was created a few, I don't know, a few million years ago or something like that, or I don't know how long ago they say. But the young Earth theory, they call it, you know, it doesn't have a lot of credibility in scientific uh, community. So, and in that anyway. Uh, Sankhya worldview, there is the subtle matter. And subtle matter is the medium through which consciousness interacts with the world, basically in a simplistic sense, with through mind. Mind is said to be the sixth sense, but it's very different than the other five, isn't it? It's very, very different. It has the ability to, to kind, of, kind of experience all the senses, and make determinations about them and so forth. It's very, it's much more flexible. And we know, uh, for example, that the, the mental realm, the dream world, 
is far more flexible than the physical world. Mm -hmm. Prabhupada used to give the example that you can see gold and you can see a mountain, but you can't see a golden mountain. But in your mind you can see a golden mountain. In the dream world, we say it's only in your mind, but that may be, huh, why only? Maybe mind is more profound. All the whole realm of the devas, and all, these are all mental stuff to be experienced in the world of mind. Mind is, this is just a physical thing in, in between your ears as we're, as we're discussing it. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an element, if you will. And it is the element of the medium through which consciousness interacts with matter. And this mind is, in this subtle stuff, it's subtle, so it's much more like the soul. That's why people identify with psychic things as being spiritual. That's why people identify intelligence with knowing, because knowing is the, is, the, is the prerogative of the soul, but intelligence is very, very close to soul. I mean, as, as I'm talking about it in terms of Sankhya, the activating of the primordial material nature, the pradhan on the part of consciousness, causes a subtle, causes consciousness to animate. And then consciousness, through buddhi, it, it identifies with that. So it's very close. Prabhupada should say intelligence and soul are like, it's very close to one another. Intelligence is the hierarchy and the material progression of things. And so it's, it, you identify with it more. If I say to you, Agni, you're a little, you're a little fat, you know? Yeah, so what, you know? If I say you're dumb, what are you talking about? You get, this, more readily, people will take offense. Mm -hmm. They identify more with their intelligence, with their mind, actually, than with their body. Because it's actually closer to the soul, this is the theory. It's actually closer to the soul, and it has more of a capacity to be soul-like, being a subtle form of matter. So this is an interesting distinction that we make from modern science and, 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 and from substance dualists, Christians or others who, who, are, who are substance dualists, it's not as close from a uh, scriptural point of view, look at the mind and at consciousness. And of course, you know, this has been the subject and the preoccupation of India as a country, as a nation, as a world, for centuries and centuries, consciousness. There you will find the most mystics. And wherever you find religion becomes mystical, you find it goes Indian. It goes towards India. Ahimsa starts to come into play, and, and reincarnation starts to come into play. Christian mysticism often includes a reincarnation or some semblance of it, whereas uh, less mystical Christianity doesn't. The, the, more you, the more you go, if you take Islam, the more you take it mystically, the closer it comes to Hinduism and, and Vedanta. Christianity the same. Ju Judaism also. The more it becomes mystical Judaism, the more you find a correspondence with Hindu Hinduism. Hinduism and Vedanta, which is, which is not separate from Hinduism. There's a religious orientation in Hinduism and there's a mystical orientation within Hinduism. And one is, is supposed to lead to the other. Being dharmic and religious is, and inquiring about that and, and acting accordingly is supposed to promote Mysticism and Vedanta, interest in Vedanta. That's why, in one reason, for one sense, why this argument is taking place. Because Arjuna has showed himself to be very dharmic, 
So he's made a thorough inquiry into Dharma, and he's qualified now to inquire into and hear about Brahman. Tato, Dharma Jignasu is followed by Brahma Jignasu. This is the system from Karma Mimamsa, Purva Mimamsa. Purva Mimamsa is the Karma Mimamsa. It means the beginning discussion. And Uttar Mimamsa is Vedanta, the latter discussion. From religion to, to, to mysticism, to, from religion to spirituality. So, it's the land of spirituality. Either it's the land of the deluded, or it's the land of the enlightened. And if the enlightenment that India is so much uh, is, is exemplary of in its past and its literature as its past and to some extent its presence that lives on today that finds adherence even in the West outside of itself and so forth that resist the, the, the arguments of, of naturalism and so on and so forth and ex- examples of of, of, of what is being described as mystics and so forth, producing them still. This, this India, this uh, uh, enduring idea of enlightenment, it really, <laughs> it really is fully... Uh, uh, India is the home of that, the mother of that. It really gives birth to that, to the world. The religious urge is universal, but the mysticism is... This is really the the, uh, the mother of this. India is the mother. Buddhism comes out of India. As soon as Christianity becomes mystical, you start to find this, some parallels with Hinduism, as I say, with, with Islam and Sufism and so on and so forth. India is really the home of it. Now, so, so, so uh, either these people, these mystics uh, in India and in the, the text are really delusional or they're, they, they, they speak... They're about enlightenment. Now, what science can say about it is only this. They can say that the mystic experience is a real experience possible within the human brain that's pretty far out. <laughs> that's what they'll say. And as I say, I'd like to take it with the moral argument and, 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 and verify that what it does is it cements people in the conduct that is universally accepted to be morally correct, you understand, like to love your brother as yourself, to do good unto others as you'd have to do unto you. The mystic can do that because he sees that. I'm saying he sees the objective morality that people embrace and say is, 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 is correct. Even atheists say it. They don't have a lot of... Their argument falls short for the theists when they say that atheism also agrees with this. You know, why? You're just you're just particles, just DNA dancing. That's all, you know. So what's the reason for it? But anyway, they they have their arguments. They're not satisfying to the theist, but but um, they say universally that such things are acceptable. Now, how to if we are to conduct ourselves consistently in terms of those things? Mysticism is the best place to go, whether it's just in the brain, or it, or it is more than than that as the mystics say. And of course, you know, if you have the experience, you'll say the same thing. It's more. You'll say it's more. It'd be very hard to have the experience and then go back and, and make less out of it. It can't be verified, you know, from a third person kind of point of view in one sense. I suppose Christianity thinks that it has in their faith in Jesus, 
on, based on the account of the apostles, which is thought to be historical rather than myth- mythological in the way it's written. Historians have said Luke in particular is, is documented as absolutely historical, scholars say. So, okay, they say this is an hu- event in human society that took place. What was the event? The uh, Jesus of Nazareth was born, he died, and after three days he came back from the dead. And people saw it. Twelve or so people saw it. And they're writing the history of that. And the person that did that says that he's God. And so Christianity likes to embrace that as an empirical basis for their faith, which, interesting, this is the, this is interesting part about Christianity, which then, in their opinion, gives them the license to reject every other religion. It can't be; it is not empirically verifiable. <laughs> this is this is this is the idea. Of course, you know how you know that's not a, obviously universally accepted as empirical evidence that their testimony is is sufficient. But it is an empiric basis on which Christianity feels that they have uh, off largely some some credibility over others. Now, India may be the land of mysticism, but where are the testimonies? You know, that are verifiable by morally upright people that you know somebody died and came back. I mean, yogis do all kinds of things and so forth. There are testimonies, but there's not one like the Bible. Where's the testimony that Krishna even existed? Of course, we would say the testimony is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He's the testimony. His whole life is based on the, re- the objective reality of Krishna, and so many ecstatic transformations he experienced, and so on and so forth. I mean, that only goes so far. And the Christian argument only goes so far. Ultimately, we're left with our, with our faith. But our faith is based on good reasoning and common sense and some empiric evidence, too. We have empirical evidence that the mystical state of experiencing what Krishna's talking about here exists. The question is whether it is what the experiencer says it is. Are you experiencing a soul that's different from matter? Or are you just experiencing some possibility of the brain that can be tapped into? And of course, some people will make the argument for the latter and say, but it is, but it is good and we should have a materialistic spirituality, you know, kind of a thing, mm-hmm. and be good people and so on and so forth. But mm-hmm. we, of course, side on the other side that it's, um, uh, and, and we're the people involved in having the experience. We think that, that has some some value, and we think that if people would, they could say, well, let's say we can create a situation whereby you plug into this machine and you get the mystical state, bliss, ecstasy, the sense of transcending your physical limitations and ego, and 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 the feeling of unity with all beings, universal love. You become overwhelmed with that. Let's say I can plug you in, then I can prove to you. They may say that this is just a you know phenomenon of the brain. My point would be, if you can do it, everyone will be plugged in for all time. No one will unplug that plug. <laughs> no one will like unplug LSD. that plug. Hmm? Yeah, well, more than that, because <laughs> LSD is confusing. <laughs> this is noetic ecstasy, ecstasy which causes a kind of knowing and a kind of conduct. You could take LSD and kill, kill, uh, yeah, and be a James. Man- what is that guy's name? Manson. Manson, you know, who killed the California on LSD, the famous killings that he did. So you're not going to do that on on, uh, on bhakti, on prem. So 
So here, anyway, in these few verses, Krishna says, the soul can't be cut, can't be, can't be moistened by water, can't be withered by wind. And so, so he's saying it's transcendental to the material elements. In the first verse and the second verse, he says, because it's a chedyo, it's indivisible, therefore it can't be cut. Because it's unburnable, therefore, it can't be burned by fire. And so, so he says it can't be, these things can't be done to it. And then in the second verse he says, this is why they can't be done, because it's like this. It's, 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 it's invisible, it's unburnable, it's insoluble, it can't be dried up, it's eternal, it's all-pervading, changeless, unmoving, primeval. And, uh, and let me finish there. And then in the last verse, he says, So he says other things about the soul. It's invisible, it's inconceivable, it's immutable. And he says, it is said, uchite. The implication of the word uchite is, it is said means he's referring here in his argument to Arjuna, his disciple, about the nature of the self, referring to the ongoing revelation. It is said means the Upanishads say it. And so he's using this mechanism, as I said, it's required for clearing doubts, reference to the scripture. Hmm? And so he can he can, makes a conclusion here, and uh, then he'll go on and give another counter-argument. But anyway, if you say that it's not, you, know, you can also look at it like this. So. <laughs> Question? Exactly what the word changeless means when Krishna says it. Changeless means it doesn't undergo the transformations of birth, growth, maturation, giving off of byproducts, the material. The material changes. Yeah. We go through transformations. Birth, growth, maturation, giving off offspring, aging, dwindling, dying. These are the transformations for, that, that the soul doesn't undergo. It's changeless. It should be pointed out here also that he says it's 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 um, all pervading. Goswami comments it means it's because Krishna is all pervading, and the enlightened soul attaches itself to Krishna, thereby it's all pervading also in that sense, because obviously we are not seeing it in terms of the atma becoming the paramatma from a theistic perspective. The word all pervading is that. From the word Sarvagata? Yeah, yeah. I'll read what Jiva Goswami says. The word Sarvagata, meaning, as meaning dependent, Gata, on God, who is everything, Sarva. Everything is but God and his energies. Mm-hmm. One who is aware of this and thus depends exclusively on God in all circumstances experiences all pervasiveness through his dependence on he who is all pervasive. Okay, Bhagavad Gita Gijai, Sikrishna Arjun Gijai.